Amen. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, as it is our pleasure and delight to work our way through this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Today we'll be looking at chapter 3. We will not read the entirety of this chapter, but we will read a good portion of it. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles, or if you don't have uh, your Bible with you today, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 399 and follow along. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and it set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to them, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zechur, the son of Imri, built. The son of Hashna built the fish gate. It laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Merimuth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazak, repaired. Next to them, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazabel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banal, repaired. Next to them, the Tukoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joedah, the son of Pasha, and Meshalam, the son of Beshadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Merthonite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Aziel, the son of Hera, goldsmith, repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite the house. And next to them, Hatush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Hiram, and Hasab, the son of Pathamob, repaired another section in the Tower of Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Hashla, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of district of Beth Akram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And if you'll skip down to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaiah, and Hannah, the sixth son of Zelph, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmith and the merchants repaired. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A few years ago, I read David McCullough's fascinating book on the building of the Brooklyn Bridge and about the architect John Roebling and his son Washington Roebling, who oversaw the construction of this incredible suspension bridge in the late 19th century. It was an 
unprecedented architectural feat in its day, and in many ways still is. In fact, it was built 50 years before the first automobile, and is still in use today. Over 100,000 vehicles cross this 150-year-old bridge daily. It truly is a marvel. But as marvelous as it may be, and as beautifully as it was designed, and as wonderfully as it was executed, it would have never come into existence if it did not have workers that were willing to work on it, to build it, and to construct it. And this was no small task. In fact, it was a grueling and dangerous work because much of it was done below water level. Literally, they had to dig and drill down into the riverbed in order to construct the foundation that would hold these massive towers on either side of the bridge. And then once those towers were constructed, then there was over a hundred, excuse me, there was 14,000 miles of wire that was strung between these towers in order to build the bridge. And these wires were hundreds of feet in the air. So it took courageous and bold and somewhat foolish workers to accomplish such a task as this. And no, their names would not be remembered, but the bridge would not have come into fruition without them because they were all willing to work and work together for the same cause. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, we see something very similar. Nehemiah had a plan, he had a vision, but none of it would have come into fruition if the people weren't willing to work together. They needed to build this wall of Jerusalem, and the work would not be glorious work. No, it would be hard work. It would be dirty work. It would be the sweat-of-your-brow type work. But what do we see? We see that they were willing. The people saw the vision, and they put their minds and their hands to go about the work and to work together for this same cause. And so the question is this morning, are we? Are we willing? Do we see ourselves as workers, laborers, builders of something great, much greater than ourselves or our own reputations or our own legacy? Do we see ourselves as the part of the work of Christ in this world, the extension of his kingdom? I hope we do. And I think this chapter tells us, as does the whole of Scripture, that this worth is this work is worth working towards and giving ourselves to. It's worth being uni- unified together, coming together to do this which Christ would call us to do. And so we'll see that in three points this morning: one heart, one hand, one purpose. First, one heart. I know what you were thinking this morning when I was reading this passage, other than, is he getting these names right, which I probably was not. 
that you were probably thinking, what is pastor going to preach on from this passage this morning? And it's something that I've been thinking about all week. So I appreciate your prayers continually for your pastors. Perhaps even if you're honest and perhaps if you're a guest this morning, you might have been even thinking, you know what, this is kind of strange. Where am I? Isn't there more relevant things to our life and to our culture in the 21st century than who built what 2,500 years ago? And I admit, you're right. It is a bit strange. But let me say this from the onset. The call of Christ is strange. It's counterintuitive. In fact, we are called to follow this man that lived 2,000 years ago. And when he lived, even then, what he said and what he did cut across the grain of culture. That's why he was hated and even eventually murdered. He was different. And part of the call of Christ is to be different in this world. If you want to be accepted by this world, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. You also want to follow Christ. In fact, you cannot be a follower of Christ and at the same time be accepted by this world. It's not going to happen. It's like saying you want to play in the NBA, but you also want to be a horse jockey. Those two things are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other, but it cannot be both. It's Christ or the world, but it cannot be both. You're called to follow Christ, and you're called to abandon the world. You're even called to abandon yourself and to hear his call, to hear his voice in the whole of his scriptures, both in the Old as well as the New Testament. And it's passages like this, Nehemiah chapter 3, the building of a gate 2,500 years ago that the Holy Spirit can and will use if we're willing to listen to it. The reality is that there's actually much here that all of the scriptures indeed are useful. Even passages such as this that we think may not be. But these passages are not here by mistake. The Holy Spirit can and will use it in our lives if we give ourselves to it. If we do not think that we are better than it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that in our lives even this day. Well, if you're with us in the last couple weeks, then you have kind of understood the context of how Nehemiah got here to Jerusalem. And we saw in Nehemiah chapter 2 how he does this midnight ride to inspect the walls. And then he gathers the people together. And he says to them, we are in trouble. The walls are in ruin. The gates are burned down. But let us rise up and let us build. And we heard at the end of chapter 2 that the people indeed listened to Nehemiah and they said, yes, let's rise up and let us build. 
And what we see in chapter 3, which should be incredibly encouraging to us, is that the people actually do that. They rise up and they build. In fact, it gives it probably in ad nauseum terms, probably in more detail than you even want to hear. But what we should see from the beginning is that these people weren't just stirred up by Nehemiah's words in a moment of exhilaration and say, let's do it. And then they kind of left the pep rally and went back to what they were doing before and didn't work. No, what we see was that they weren't just moved by emotionalism. No, they were moved by conviction. See, sentimentality never lasts. But if it's true conviction, that is something that you will live by. You'll live your life out of it. And that must be said of us as well. Very easy to come here, perhaps to have your heart stirred, your emotions riveted, but then to leave and to go back to doing what you did before. By Sunday afternoon, or for sure by Monday morning, you go back to your normal thoughts and your normal routines. No, what we should say is that coming to church just shouldn't be an experience. It should be a life change. We should be reformed. We should be renewed continually and constantly. And the Holy Spirit can do that by his word if we give ourselves to the word, if we apply that word to our hearts and to our lives, not just on Sunday, but every weekday. I remember a pastor once saying, I don't care how high you jump on Sundays. You can tell this wasn't a Presbyterian pastor. There's not too much jumping going on in the Presbyterian church. But nevertheless, he said, I don't care how high you jump on Sunday as long as you're walking straight on Monday. And that is true, isn't it? Or as I have said often and quoted before, that the sermon has been preached, but it is yet to be lived. In other words, this part is the easy part. The preaching of the sermon, the listening of the sermon is the easy part. It's the living out of the word that is the difficult part. That is where the rubber hits the road, as they say. But what we see from the people during Nehemiah's day is that what was said on Sunday carried over to Monday and to Tuesday. And in fact, for many weeks, because the people went to work. And they went to work because they had one heart. And what heart is that? Well, it's the heart of a servant. That is what's needed. See, if you just go about working, it'll last maybe for a day or two. But if you don't have the right heart, if you don't have the heart motivation, if you don't have the heart conviction, it's not going to last. And so what is the heart conviction that is needed? What is the heart motivation that is needed? It is to be a servant. And that is what we saw, didn't we, in Nehemiah. In fact, that is what we see in the life of Nehemiah. We see a, a servant, a servant leader. 
In fact, that's exactly how he prayed back in chapter 1. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and give success to your servant today. But notice that that servant attitude, well, it's quite not only effective, but it's quite contagious. It's what others begin to see and get on board with. In fact, perhaps you missed it. But did you notice who was first on this list in Nehemiah chapter 3? And no doubt you did miss it because you were too focused on these funny names. But look back with me in verse 1. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built. They built the sheep gates. Do you hear what it says? And I think this is intentional. And Nehemiah starts here. He starts with the priests. In fact, he starts with the high priest, Eliashib, the highest spiritual officer in the land, the one that would have conducted the worship and the sacrifice of their God. And yet, what does it say? Does it say Eliashib prayed while everybody else worked? Does it say that the priest offered up sacrifices at the temple while everybody else labored? No, it says that they too built. They built the wall. They built the gate. In fact, it was not below them. They were not saying this is underneath us. This is below us. We're not to do manual labor. We're not to get our hands dirty. No, we're to stay clean. No, that is not what they said. They were not too high and mighty of spiritual significance to do such a work as this. In fact, you can imagine them shedding off their priestly garments and putting on their overalls, so to speak, and strapping on their tool belt and going to work. Now, if they were anything like this pastor, they probably needed some help because they weren't too good with the work of their hands. They needed a a Robbie Hines to help them. But the point is still clear. They had a heart to build. And yet this isn't true of all of them. You notice, you go down to verse 5. It says that next to them that the coits repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. They thought they were too noble, too high in status. Perhaps they thought, who is this Nehemiah? Who is this man that comes in on a horse and tells us what to do? We're not going to be a part of that. We got other things to do. We're far too important to do such a task as that. I remember hearing a story about a corporate lunch at Chick-fil-A. And they had all the bigwigs up front on the stage. And they were doing the corporate-type things that they do at these corporate-type lunches. And while this was going on, one of the waiters that was serving the tables right up front, dropped their tray of food. And it went 
everywhere with a loud crash. So much so that everybody noticed. You couldn't help but noticing. No doubt, it was embarrassing for this person, this waiter, who drew attention to his self or to herself. But this is what I heard. That Dan Cathy, the highest one in the Chick-fil-A corporation, got down off of the stage and started to help clean up. This wasn't planned. This wasn't staged. No, there was a, a mess. There was a problem. There was help that was needed. And he was willing to stoop down to do so. I say that because I'm pretty positive that everything that was said that day has long been forgotten. But that example, no doubt, left a lasting impression upon all those people that were below him because he showed what true leadership looks like. Because you're not too high, too noble to not stoop and serve the Lord. Well, because it's the leadership of Christ, isn't it? That's what Christ's leadership looks like. John 13, Jesus laying aside his outer garments and washing the feet of his disciples. And John, when he writes about that, writes about it in such detail that you know that it was never forgotten. It was emblazoned upon his mind. Here is the Lord of creation serving his creatures in the lowliest of low positions as a foot washer. It was symbolic, wasn't it, of his, the whole of his ministry and even his life on this earth and especially his death. And followers of Christ are to follow that example or to have that type of servant leadership being the least of these. Indeed, it will soon be officer nomination time again. It's hard to believe, but it will come. Or we nominate elders and deacons. And it's quite clear who should be nominated. It's those that are doing the work of ministry already. They don't need a title. They aren't waiting for somebody to ask them. But are doing it because... They desire to serve their Lord. And that is true far beyond elders and deacons. It's every aspect of ministry. Humility, what is needed, can never be overestimated. It's far greater than any other character and quality. It starts in the heart. If you've had your feet, indeed, the whole of your body washed by the Lord Jesus Christ, then what room is there for pride or being puffed up? No, Jesus says when we have done all of our duty, may it be said of us that still we would say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. May that be said of us at Smyrna Presbyterian Church that we are merely unworthy servants doing our duty. In fact, 
we want to say that we take the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his worship very seriously. But at the same time, we don't want to take ourselves very seriously. Because how can we? We are mere unworthy servants simply doing our duty. Well, second then, we see one hand. As you read through this section, you see that it tells in this detail, Nehemiah writes in this detail that so-and-so worked on the wall and they worked next to so-and-so who worked next to so-and-so and these people did this section and those people did that section. And they built from this place to that place. In other words, they all had their part to play. But let me ask if so-and-so built this part, but the people next to them didn't build theirs. Well, how good would the wall be? If so-and-so built the, the valley gates, but there was no one to build the horse gates, or if somebody built the sheep gate, but nobody built the fish gate, and there was gates and gaps in between, well, it would be no good at all, would it? Their work together would have been ineffective or voided by those that would not do their part. And the spiritual principle is obvious, isn't it? <laughs> and we all have our part to play in the body of Christ. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, behold, I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, then that would make it any less a part of the body. The ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were the same member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You hear what Paul is saying. That in the body there are many parts. And each part needs to do its part. It needs to do its responsibility. It needs to do its duty. And yet, as it does, it is part of that one body. It helps the whole. But if it does not do that which it is supposed to do, then the whole body is hurt. And as we read Nehemiah chapter 3, we see something very similar to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12. He's saying that not all are the same here. Perhaps you noticed that as we made our way through it. You saw the diversity of professions and the different geographical locations that are listed here. You have Eliashib, the high priest. You have Uzziel, the goldsmith. You have Hananiah, the perfumer. I don't know what a perfumer would be able to do in the sense of the wall, but yet he was still willing to work. You have merchants, and you have Levites, and you have temple servants. 
You have people from Jerusalem and Jericho and Tekoa. And then one of my favorites you have in verse 12, Shalom, ruler of half district of Jerusalem. And it says, he and his daughters. He said, girls, come on, let's go. It's time to build. And he was a ruler. That means that they were probably the equivalent of princesses in that day. And yet, they were willing to work. They were willing to do what the Lord was asking of them to do. This is about as diverse as a group as you can get. But that's a description of the church, isn't it? Here, the Old Testament church, but the same as in the New Testament church. The same is true today. If you look around at this group, it would be very difficult to try to group us together around our similarities. Professionally, we're different. In our interests, and in our hobbies, we're different. Racially and demographically, we're different. Politically, we're different. All different, except for one thing. And that one thing is Christ. Christ is the one unifier. All of those other things are secondary, and they must remain secondary. We're brought together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And these brothers and sisters, as you work together, become closer than even your biological family. Because you say, this is my family. Those that are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And like any family, you're called to work. We have a young neighbor girl that lives next to us who's friends with our kids and She's kind of become an adopted part of the family. And a few weeks ago, it was around dinner time, and I had the kids helping out with dinner. And I said to this girl, the neighbor girl, I said, all right, Sophia, if you're going to be part of this family, you got to do some work. I gave her a knife and a bowl of potatoes. I said, start cutting. And she did, and not only did she, but she seemed to enjoy Doing the work. That's often what you find, isn't it? That when you join in with the work, as you go shoulder to shoulder together, you feel included. You feel like you belong. You feel like you have these shared interests. And so if you are feeling like you are out of the loop, if you feel like you are being disenfranchised from the church, then the best way for you to get involved, to be connected, to Be together with your brothers and sisters in Christ is to put your hand to the wall, so to speak. Be a part of the work that God is calling us to do here at this church. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we we have a new ministry catalog. Read through it and find places that you feel like you can help out. Because we each have our section to build, so to speak. In fact, that is a part of our salvation. You remember that very famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2 or 8 and 9 where it talks about by faith you've been saved through grace and not by works. And it's true that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by the work of Christ. 
But once we are saved, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to work, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear what Jesus is saying, Paul is saying? That when you're saved, you're not just to sit around and wait until he takes you home to heaven. No, he's got a work for you to do. And what happens? Well, just as the walls were built here, so the church of Jesus Christ is built. The body of Christ is built, spurred on towards greater work, greater glorification of, of Christ. But it won't happen unless all join in, all do their part. It's not to be 2080 or even 80-20. No, it's 100%, each in their own unique way. Again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, all parts are indispensable, even the not-so-glorious parts or the parts that seemingly need to, to stay hidden. And we even see that in Nehemiah chapter 3. Do you notice this? In verse 14, we read about this Melchijah. Did you notice what gate he was called to repair? He was called to repair the dung gate. I'm pretty sure the dung gate is called the dung gate for a reason. And it's surely not too pleasant. I don't know if he drew the short straw or what. But you know what? The dung gate needed to be repaired. And Melchijah was willing to do it and praise God for it. And so praise God for those in the church that are willing to do the, the modern equivalent of the dung gate ministry. And if you want to know what that is today, then let me introduce you to Kristen Swallow, our nursery coordinator, and I think you'll quickly realize we have what's called the diaper gate. But what is shown is that it's all indispensable. There's nothing too low. All is needed. Even if it's not fully known, or even if it's not recognized, or even if it doesn't get the glory and praise of men, because you know what? It's known unto God. And that is enough. Well, let me quickly move on to the third point. One purpose. That'd be a miss to, to say the purpose of all of this. You might say, great, Pastor, they, they built a wall, good for them. But what I want to stress and will stress again and again that this is far more than building a gate or building a wall or even building a city. No, this is a, a promise that they are building upon a promise that through this land and through these people, the promised Messiah would come. See, if there's no wall, then there's no land, and there is no people, and there is no Messiah. See, the people, and especially Nehemiah, believed the promises. They believed Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. They believed all of the covenant promises. And even more than that, they saw that they were a part of the fulfillment. Now, did they realize that in the moment? 
as they are working by the, the work of their hands and the sweat of their brows? Did they understand that they were bringing these promises to fruition? Probably not. No, they were just trying to be obedient. They were just trying to do the small tasks that they were called to do. God was taking their meager work, their meager work of stacking brick on brick, line upon line to build up this wall, but through it he was doing a much greater and grand work. And we can see that at least in parts here in chapter 3. Let's look back at verse 1 once again. Did you notice that gate that the priests were called to build and to repair? They were called to build the sheep gate. Now, why is it the sheep gate? Well, it's through that gate that they would bring in the sheep into the city. Sheep for what? Well, for sacrifice. That's where the sheep for temple sacrifice would be brought in. And as they build that and built it, little did they know, 600 years later, another sheep, the great sheep, the great lamb of God, would walk exactly through that very gate. And he would come, and he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins for all the people. But do you understand that if there's no sheep gate, then there's no sheep, and there's no lamb, and there's no lamb of God, and there's no forgiveness of sins. See, our work is the same, beloved. Is our work going to save anyone? Is our work going to grant the forgiveness of sins? No, it will not. But it can be a part, even an ever so small part of the work of the one who will and can and does use you and me for his work, the work of his church, the work of his kingdom, the work of redemption, the work of forgiveness, the work of saving lost sinners unto himself. I tell you that that work, that work, my friends, is priceless. That work, my friends, is worthy of giving your life, of giving your soul, of giving your all to. And to do so wholeheartedly. What a privilege it is to be a part of God's redemption story, his story of redemption in this world, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me finish with this. I started talking about the workers of the Brooklyn Bridge and this dangerous and uncomfortable work. And you might ask, who would do such work as this? Well, one writer put it this way. It was the kind of job where only the hungriest would go anywhere near. Do you hear what they say? Only the hungriest would do such a work as this. Well, it's no different in the body of Christ, is it? And the question this morning is where is our hungry, hunger? And what are we hungry for? What are we hunger and thirst after? Is it Christ and his righteousness? 
do we realize that it is only in Christ that we are satisfied. It's only in Christ that this world will have the bread of life that they long for and that they need. See, it needs to be that type of conviction in order for us to put our hand to the wall and do the work God calls us to do and be a part of. And I tell you, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to do his work, to build his kingdom, all for his glory's sake. May the Lord be pleased use each and every one of us for the building up of his kingdom and his church, being part of his work of redemption in this world. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that saved the likes of us, those that were sinful wretches, lost, without a hope. Lord, you came and plucked us out of our hopelessness, saved us from our utter ruin and damnation, and brought us into your family, the family of God. Lord, what a joy and privilege it is to to be here amongst your family, to be a part of the the work of your church, the work that you're doing first and foremost in each one of us and then through us, O Lord, into this world. So, Lord, we pray that we would be salt and light. We pray that we would put our hand to the wall, that we would do our section, whatever that may be, play the part that you would have us to do. And Lord, that you would use us collectively, both as this church as well as our gathered church, church around the world, to extend your kingdom, extend your work to the four corners of the earth as you save your elect from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west till you come again. Lord, as you come, would you find a church that is at work, that is laboring hard for your sake and for your glory? Would you enable us and help us to have such conviction to do so? We we do so, Lord, for your pleasure, for your purpose, and for your kingdom and glory, we pray. Amen.